Welcome to Three Little Things, a natural health podcast. We've created this space to help you positively navigate the world of holistic and natural well-being, where each week we will explore something new and dive into a diverse range of holistic health topics from all walks of life. As chiropractors, we are equally passionate about helping educate, share and empower you on your well-being journey. Created with you in mind, Three Little Things aims to bring you digestible topics and applicable tools and strategies to help you grow, thrive and live well. So let's dive in. Welcome to episode seven of the Three Little Things podcast. Another extra special episode this week. We have another guest, but my name is Sarah and I'm joined with my co-host Lily. And our guest today is Archie. So Archie is Lily's son and my partner. So an extra special guest today. So special. Yeah. Welcome, Archie. Welcome. <laughs> For to, now. Welcome to our podcast. That could change. Yeah. Good. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Uh, you're an EP and I'm going to get you in a second to introduce yourself. But before we do that, we had a little question from a listener. Lily. Yeah, so someone wrote into us, I'm asking this question and of course we can't answer it. So you better, Arch. And it was regarding um, our, our podcast on um, the cerebellum and the value of our head basically and concussion and whiplash. Pretty and, important part of your body, isn't it? Yeah, just slightly. And how the biggest population of sports people to have concussion or whiplash was some American um, rules football. And the second um, mob were soccer players, but in particular girl soccer players, because apparently they, they closed their eyes or they blinked as they went up for the ball. Oh, and they get, when Head, they headed the ball. Correct. Interesting. And so our, our listener asked, um, what happens with boxers, do you think? I think there's a couple points to that. Well, first off, I find it hilarious that the the people with the most head injuries are the ones that wear helmets. <laughs> um, they're the ones that are supposed to know how to tackle, yet uh, they end up that. Mm-hmm. diving headfirst into people to try and stop them, which is hilarious. Um, yeah, uh, see, I think with boxers is from a young age, they learn how to take hits is one thing. So I think a very important part of boxing is head movement and rolling with punches. So you're really not kind of, as opposed to soccer, where you're purposefully pushing your head into the ball. In boxing, you're never really pushing your head into the fist that's coming for you. Mm, so that'd be point. one point. I think the other is the gloves are actually quite cushiony. The rounds are also only three minutes. <laughs> but often I think careers don't go for as long as soccer careers. Yeah. So there's yeah. a couple of points there. It's hard to know, really. So do you think their eyes are closed or not? You know, what we were saying with the soccer players is when they go up with a header, they close their eyes just a second or, you know, a half a second before they hit head of the ball. So do you think in boxing that we have that anticipation or that almost reflex-like movement? I'd like to think that they train to avoid closing their eyes when they do it uh, because they're trying to counter for the next punch. But I've seen a lot of photos of boxers right or I'd see the right before, right after a hit, and their eyes are definitely closed and their face is very kind of muddled up. So I think sometimes mm. you just can't avoid it and it's part of a human reflex. You know when you like tap someone on the on the forehead right between their eyes mm. and you tell the them to blink, try and yeah. not blink. Mm-hmm. Have you already talked about this? That was in the previous podcast regarding <laughs> no, no, re- regarding ADD and ADHD kids, actually. It was actually a, a test we do neurologically in our practice. Yeah. Well, mm. I thought I might preface that for you a little bit there. You've yeah. done some homework then, have you? You listened to some of our episodes? No, I'm just used to, uh, it was a game we played at school when you'd tap people <laughs> on the forehead and, and it was like, try not blink, try not blink. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for answering that question. And I hope our I listeners, <laughs> listener loves that. That was clear. But um, before we get... <laughs> 
too far into this episode, Arch. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, who I am. I, I thought I'd start with um, three very interesting things. And I just wanted to say I'm very grateful that I don't know how many people can say they've been on their, on their partner's uh, podcast, but then I don't know how many people can say they've been on their mum's podcast either. <laughs> But I think there's even fewer people who could say that they've been on their mums and their partners' podcast together when they're co-hosts. Um, well, yeah, and I want to throw one more in there. The third little thing is their mums and their partners' podcast, which is produced by their cousin. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Leah. <laughs> so there, there's my family tree. But, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a human male. I'm an exercise physiologist. I work in private practice on the Sydney's Orland Beaches. Um, for most people who haven't heard what an exercise physiologist is, I basically use exercise and movement to help people with um, chronic conditions, disabilities and injuries. So, yeah, that's kind of my, my background. Um, I went to uni to do that at Sydney Uni. Um, and I've been in practice on the Northern Beaches for more than a couple of years now. And I see quite a range of people, quite a lot of people with disability, whether that's physical intellectual or mental health disability. And I also have a special interest in um, chronic and persistent pain as well. So I don't know if that'll come up on another podcast, probably not this one. But yeah, those are kind of my areas of interest. Outside of that, I just kind of do what normal people do and you know, enjoy not being in lockdown. That's always nice. There's a yeah. lot of um, lot of information there in one hit, Arch, because um, Chronic pain is a really big topic. And I guess what we really need to know is um, how does exercise relate to all these um, conditions? Yeah, which conditions? Oh, okay. Because <laughs> well, I, I listed it, all of them. Good point. Yeah, why don't you lay the foundation, I guess, of what we're going to dive a little bit deeper into today and then that might start the ball rolling with with where exercise falls into that. Yeah, well, I mean, today we're, we're talking about intellectual disabilities and specifically well, not just intellectual disabilities, we're talking specifically about ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, making sure I got that acronym right. <laughs> I don't use the whole words all the time. And the role of exercise in um, young people, adolescents, and then into adulthood as well, and where we come into that, which is not a hugely talked about area. You know, it's it's generally treated as a condition through um, pharmacological, so pharmacological. Hmm. What am I saying there? Is that the right <laughs> word? It's a couple of syllables. Through medication and then also through cognitive behavioural therapy, normally with a psychiatrist or a psychologist, sometimes an OT. Very rarely is there someone there, part of the treatment team, who is specifically there for exercise and activity. So, so the, these ADD, ADHD kids, are the kids, I assume, or young adults? What's what, with, with ADHD, the, the vast majority of people were diagnosed as a kid. and That's, say, under 10? Yeah, okay. let's say under mm -hmm. 10. Can be diagnosed as a teenager as well. The thing with ADHD is as you get older, it becomes harder to diagnose because there's so much overlap with other conditions. Ah, like, so there's like a lot what? of overlap with mental health conditions such oh, as wow. generalised anxiety disorder, mm. uh, depression, some psychological conditions as well. Even personality disorders. Personality disorders, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So the, the earlier you can diagnose it, the better. And the reason for this is then it can be properly managed. So, so we're talking non-drug-related um, therapies here because we're a natural health podcast. Well, that's it. And I couldn't give you much information. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
about that anyway. So anyway, you're going to be seeing them as an EP. Um, what's the ideal age to start then with these kids? Look, the earlier the better. Mm, all right. Really, so with, with anyone. As soon as they're able to kind of engage in structured exercise and activity, that's the perfect age to start. Um, also today, I don't really want to just talk about what I can do in um, – individual or group sessions structured with me, but just exercise as an important part of their treatment plan in general. Yeah. Whether that's with an EP, with a trainer or not. Yeah. Because mm. it's, yeah. it's, as a kid, you don't always need a specific trainer. It's more about the principles that we want to implement with these people. Yeah. So it's motivating them to actually see exercise as part of their, um, well, not part of the therapy, but just part of life in general. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, it's often an overlooked part. Mm. Um, uh, and it's overlooked in terms of how useful and important it can be to these people. So when they come to see you guys, um, is there like a questionnaire or some kind of assessment program that you guys do? You can go through some assessments. Mm. Normally by the time they get to us, they've already seen a psychiatrist. They've seen a maybe a pediatrician, yeah. um, they've seen an OT and they've now been told or they've heard from someone that uh, exercise can be useful or it can be a useful part of their treatment plan. And so in terms of questionnaires for us, it's more for us getting an idea about this kid or this person individually. So are they having trouble with certain things in school? Are they struggling to maintain attention across the whole day? Um, do they have impulsive behaviours? Do they have difficulty following instructions? Can they regulate their energy throughout the day? These sorts of things, yeah. So in terms of actual assessments in the research, definitely. Um, they have these things called, it's called the Strengths and Difficulties Questionnaire, mm. which is quite general. Yeah. Um, but it's basically a questionnaire that parents or teachers can fill out there's different versions of it you can find online. You can just Google it. Yeah. That they get parents and teachers to fill out about a particular kid and it uh, basically addresses different areas of emotional health, cog cognition, social interaction and physical interaction as well and health and uh, basically just measure these things on a four to five point scale and they get an overall score. So they use this in research so they can try and track how different treatments and that sort of thing are going over time. In terms of the individual kid in practice, I prefer to think about it more with their specific goals rather than how do you um, fit on this questionnaire. Mm, great. So you would sense. interview um, the child and the parent just to see what they want to get from um, yeah. the EP sessions. Yeah, yeah. great. Mm. Um, and as you say, the younger the better, of course. So it's got to be yeah. sort of um, tailored to that child's um, Absolutely. age. So do you want to give us an example of um, what it might look like for a, a young kid of say, look, so what's the youngest um, child you've had in your program? The youngest child I've had mm. in my program, they would have been eight when they started. Now they had um, a couple different uh, conditions. They had ADHD with also ASD or autism spectrum disorder. Um so they came under the NDIS or National Disability Insurance Scheme. Um, and it's, a, it's harder to get onto the NDIS for basically funding for your treatments from the government just for ADHD. It's normally an associated condition um, or a comorbid condition that goes along with a uh, more serious intellectual condition, such as ASD. 
Yeah, yeah. it's an amazing country when you think about um, the kind of resources that um, people totally. can access. Yeah, totally. So I would imagine that would be one of the most fun therapies that the child can go to every week. You know, I mean, it's Absolutely. not like going to speech or OT or whatever. Go do some exercise with your good buddy. Well, that's it. And one of the most important things that I wanted to talk about today was it's not just about doing exercise. It's about doing exercise that's meaningful to that person. And what and is, that, talk, to, talk to our listeners a little bit about what that means and what that looks like. Sure, sure. So if I had a kid come in who was really interested in social activities, socialised really well with other kids, but just had difficulty um, at school and concentrating this sort of thing, my, my job is to basically find exercise that's effective um, but something that they will engage in long-term, something that they can hold their attention on Yeah. Right. with this population, which is really, really important. So if they really like socialising and really like group activities, the worst thing I can do is get them to run on a treadmill for 60 minutes yeah. by themselves or sit on a bike or just talk to me and do boring strength exercises. You know, that might not be meaningful to that person. They want to engage in activities. They want to engage in group things. They want to engage in fun social uh, situations. So for me, my job in that situation might be more to uh, work with them to find out what kind of sports or group activities they might be interested in and then how can we get them to engage in those outside of our sessions. Can they join a sporting team? Can they join a ninja gym? Mm. These things where they go to climbing, do like gymnastics, do like karate, yep. these sorts of things. So very, once again, the word was used before in the previous podcast, but a very concierge service, you know, very individualised um, yeah. program. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess as a child changes too, you would um, help him or her change their their approach to exercise or, you know, change it up completely so it's more novel. Well, this is the thing. you In this population it's unlikely that you'll be able to find one activity that will suit them for the rest of their lives. Mm. Yeah, in the, all of us probably. Really. In all of us, right? Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. I know I got mm. bored with different sports growing up. Thank you, Mum. You gave me the opportunity <laughs> to try different sports mm. so I could do a little bit of everything. Which was previous great. story on a previous podcast. Yeah. <laughs> was it? Yeah. Oh, Never mind. <laughs> okay, waiting for the stories. No, no, no. Anyway, so um, let's say an eight-year-old comes to you, has a lot of fun um, doing a particular sort of exercise. Do you find that their attention then lasts for that particular thing up to six weeks, 12 weeks or oh, hard to know? Once again, completely individual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It depends how engaging the activity is. It depends how engaging I am with it. Mm. depends how good we are at motivating that kid to continue with it. It depends if we have created an environment where – they can focus on something other than the exercise itself. So one of the other really important things is, or to keep it meaningful, is to find out whether they are interested in skill development, you know, learning new things. If they're interested in competition, okay, cool. Can we turn everything into a competition? Great. Let's have a let's have a race. You know, let's see who can do this faster. Let's see if you can do this faster than you used to do it. These sorts of things. So um, it's impossible to put a time limit on, really. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, just to keep it fun too, you would have outcome measures for them, wouldn't you? Because um, then they can, well, especially if they're goal-oriented kids or you want to motivate them, you can say, mm. hey, last time you were here, you know, you could only 
do X, Y, and Z, but this yeah. time, hey, look what you can do now. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So do you find with most of these kids, it works better inside or outside or once again, no no strict, no hard rules? Yeah. Once again, once and, again and I'll bring yeah. this up in a second. I'll answer this one and then I want to mm. um, kind of give the, the, the groundwork for this stuff. Yep. There is a lot of research uh, that's looked at exercise in different settings. And when they compared a pretty monotonous activity, to be honest, was walking. <laughs> for, mm. for teenagers with ADHD. I don't know who, what teenagers mm. uh, would be interested in, in, in doing a walk. But when they compared the benefits of it on their symptoms and these sorts of things, um, they found that walking in nature in a park was more effective than walking in a neighbourhood, which once again was more effective than walking in a built-up area. Mm. Right. So we find that nature is important. So. Um, on that point, though, I, I'd like to go back and kind of set some groundwork as to the, the main things that we need to do with exercise in order to give us this freedom to reach out and try all these different things. Yeah. So the, the important things, firstly, is understanding why exercise works. Um, and now this is still like a pretty early area of research and you guys as chiros and especially having a good background in neurology and the brain, um, maybe able to have some really good input here. But when we look at kids with ADHD, there are structural brain abnormalities in several areas. Now, I'm not an expert in these areas, but I know the names of them. Great. So the areas are the temporietal lobes. Anything? (laughs) (laughs) We can spell them. Does it help? That's great. Yeah. Uh, the basal ganglia. Oh, I like the BG. Yeah. Oh, the whole BG. Mm-hmm. Oh, the we're, we're on first some bases, me and the BG. <laughs> what, you know the BG? Keep <laughs> going. Are they still alive? Anyway, uh, uh, the thalamus. Ooh. How about these buzzwords? The corpus callosum. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that one rings a bell. Um, and ready, buzzword, the cerebellum. Hey. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Cerebellum. Kaboom, yeah. Do you call that the CB? Nah. No. <laughs> we call it the little brain. It's a the fam- it's, a, it's a family show, Arch. Yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with CB? <laughs> I don't know. Just try to throw that in there. Yeah, so when, mm. when they measure or they scan the brain of adolescents and kids with ADHD, there are brain abnormalities in these areas. Um, there are also changes to uh, their dopamine and norepinephrine pathways which is uh, in the prefrontal cortex. Oh. There's another one. How about that? The PFC. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you love this mother and son competitive? So I just love seeing... We could have an acronym war. I just love seeing Leah react. <laughs> we could have an AW. I can right. see where Chloe gets it from. <laughs> we're going to have an AW here, an acronym war. Oh, ready? Well, yeah, all right, keep going. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm out of them. <laughs> but basically... Um, the on that last one, the dopamine and the norepinephrine levels in the prefrontal cortex, they can or the abnormalities here that can lead to deficits in inhibitory control, yeah, um, and in executive control of attention, yeah. So that's really the the basis of you know impulsivity and oh sorry impulsiveness and attention span. Yeah, and I think just before you go on, Arch, I think it's important to really bring home all of these changes that are happening in in the brain structures and the in the nervous system and the neurology of these kids i think so often and maybe because it's becoming more and more talked about in you know what i mean by you know adhd is becoming 
more and more openly spoken about and mm. recognised. You know, people are, are comfortable saying, yes, I have ADHD, I think more so than, than previous, you know, way back when. Um, and I think now some people still see it as just bad behaviour mm. or see it as just, oh, that's a naughty kid. Um, I don't like, you know, kind of labelling it as that, but I think it's really important to bring home that, yes, there are some some changes to the neurology in these kids. And, and I think that's why it's really important to then link that back to the exercise therapy as an important component to their to their treatment. Well, on that point, that's one of the most important reasons for why diagnosis is so important. Because if you can diagnose ADHD early, you prevent these kids from thinking that they just have bad behavior yeah. and they're naughty when they're growing up. And then what happens is they start to try and cover up and suppress this naughtiness um, when it's not actually something that they're choosing to do. They're choosing yeah, to do. For sure. And this can lead to um, something which is really important and something that you know blows my mind is that people with ADHD, well, fifty percent of them will have an anxiety disorder. Wow. Yep. Up to 80% of adults with ADHD will have another psychiatric disorder or have an episode at some point in their life, whether that be depressive or even something like schizophrenia, yeah. these sorts of things. And a lot of that comes from suppression, not having proper diagnosis, not having proper information, not having proper strategies as a kid to manage these things that mm. they're dealing with. Okay, so this sort of um, plays very well into the last few episodes that we've had, which is um, to build a good brain, basically. To And we use an analogy way back that we stole from the um, psychology profession regarding a fist that's held up with um, a horizontal thumb being your brainstem and your fingers wrapped around that brainstem, mm. keeping that brainstem um, quiet and and regulated. Mm. But when the cortex is not well formed or... Um, fatigued or whatever and they fly away then the brainstem comes out to play which is what you're talking about anxiety and all those mm. um unregulated mm. um yeah. behaviors but to use a word that we quickly put in in the last episode regarding um we were trying to use these words as magazine words meaning we're trying to make them um everyday usage words yeah so we get to use a word i get to use a word today called um upregulate well, you are. Well, only because I think some of the medications, and we are not anti-meds, by the way, you know, we're, we're totally whatever you want to use. But one of the medications um, which is being used right now for ADD kids um, to upregulate their frontal lobes actually mm. is um, dexamphetamine, as mm. we know. So that's speed, basically, you know. So mm -hmm. I guess what we're trying to find out from your profession is like, let's build these beautiful brain structures mm. using exercise and other mm. therapies so mm. we don't have to um, drug our poor little littlies so they uh, don't need them. Yeah. Look, I, I want to um, put a point there is that the, I'm not claiming whatsoever that exercise can replace mm. medication sure. in this population group. Yeah, yeah. Um, because and Norway, yeah. And medication is actually so important um, for this population in order to function every day. In order to do things like get through a whole day of school, medication is really, really important. So... I have a couple of clients who, when they were at school, they took stimulants, which was really, really important for them because if they didn't, they would not have been able to, you know, stay level enough and control and regulate themselves enough to get through a day at school. Mm. Now, when they finish school, then they stop taking it mm. because they're like, no, oh, great. 
now I don't need to stay focused and attentive and avoid kind of um, impulses for um, eight hours a day without stopping. Hmm. Schools are very kind of confined environment for these kids. And so medication is definitely very, very important for them. It's, there are some side effects, of course, to things, you know, amphetamines and some other ones they use uh, similar to antidepressants and mood regulations like SSRIs, which are commonly used as antidepressants. Mm. Um, and you do get a lot of side effects from these. Mm. Some of the other side effects from stimulants uh, and the medications is that kids can report feelings of sadness and depression and these sorts of things. And having these side effects in kids that are like 12 to 14 years old is, you know, deeply saddening. Mm, yeah. Scary, yeah. To hear that. So we're always looking for better ways to manage it, yeah. you know, and better medication as well in the future. Um, but unfortunately, it's still it's really important to help people get through structured education. Yeah. Mm. Well, we've talked about this before, Sarah, in a previous podcast, you know, that um, not one thing's not one thing helps one person, you know. It Absolutely. actually needs to be mm. a, a range of approaches that the person um, picks and mm. and it's it's um, that person's gonna respond to, you know. So yeah. it's there is no recipe, is there? I mean No, 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 no. no. But and, and this is where adjunctive therapies like exercise comes into it. And we talk about the the changes that research is showing exercise can have. In people with ADHD, um, there is some early evidence of uh, actual neurological changes where you can get, well, we, we know this with exercise, that you can get um, increases in dopamine and norepinephrine and those a better working of those pathways in the brain, which helps regulation and helps attention and helps cognition, these sorts of things. There's also research showing that exercise can increase brain-derived neurotrophic factor Yes. This one's got an acronym as well. You ready? Yep. Yeah, BDNF. That's right. To go with Sonic Hedgehog as well. Well, that's it. (laughs) Um, And and basically this BDNF fact, uh, BDNF is really important for dopamine receptors to work at their full function. Um, well, one of the wonderful right. things about your profession, and I know it's a, it's a five-year university course at master's level. There's oh, been so – well, <laughs> you've got to have kids for a reason. You've got to sort of brag about a little bit. <laughs> uh, no, go anyway, on. you've got Reasonable. to take care of me in my old age. Yeah, yeah. So, sorry, what's that? Five yeah, years? well, because um, a lot of findings that you guys seem to do is just so well documented, and there must be EEGs studies as well, you know, to show how these brains um, change. What is that one? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Electro. Electroencephalographs. So um, you know, with the brain electrodes on, on your, I mean, well, they put service electrodes on your scalp to see how brain changes after mm. certain therapy. Yeah. And I would imagine um, that with ADD and ADHD kids, mm. with all those brain structures that you've mentioned, they mm. would have measured um, changes. So you Definitely. don't, yeah, I mean, you would see them in your office, you know, with the way they function. So, yeah. the, well, the research is early in these areas in mm. like doing because this is very expensive research to do, right? Where you take a brain scan and you measure these things, then you do a eight to 12 week exercise program, then you take another brain scan. This is very, very difficult research to do. Mm. So the research that's been done more and the stuff they're more likely to measure because it's uh, one easier and research needs funding, which is the annoying thing, <laughs> is um, they look at kind of the behavioral and cognitive changes, which can be measured on things like the strengths and difficulties questionnaire and also a bunch of other 
acronymed questionnaires that we don't need to go into. Yeah, and just simply reporting on changes, right? You know, and that when yeah. you're working with kids, that is a lot of the time going to come from people like their parents or their teachers in school and yeah, that yeah. sort of thing as well. But also I think this is a really, and we've brought this up before when we've been talking about kids, but giving them their own agency as well to report mm. how they're feeling. And, mm. um, you know, we know exercise is really great at helping us release more of our happy hormones um, in general. You yeah, know, HHs. It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my HHs, um, <laughs> let alone in, you know, you know, that's going to happen in everybody, let mm. alone um, in, when we're talking about ADHD kids and all these sorts of things. But I think what an important part of all of that conversation is as well is that, as you said before, you know, being an EP or exercise therapy is not just solely the answer to everything. No. It's a component of their treatment and as that's is it. what we do as chiropractors as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, um, when we talk about the, the changes that they do measure, just a couple ones to throw at you guys. Really yeah, catch them. <laughs> okay. Uh, higher daily moderate to vigorous exercise measured just with like your average heart rate measuring device they put on put on adolescents is associated with uh, better cognitive performance in kids with ADHD, yeah. which is great. Kids as early as five-year-olds who regularly participate in sport had fewer symptoms of inattention and hyperactivity measured on these questionnaires, which is also really good. And, of course, that's uh, measuring emotion, social, hyperactivity and inattention behaviours. And over and over they show studies where different types of exercise, not just the same kind of uh, monotonous ones where it's, you know, treadmill or cycling or walking, could be anything really, but at least done routinely and regularly, can have really good improvements for people maintaining attention um, and improvement in academic and classroom behaviour as well, which are things that teachers and parents can measure just subjectively. Yep, and do you find as a general rule um, that resistance exercise or aerobic exercise, do they have any, does one seem to make more difference than the other? Or they haven't In this it? population? Yep. Totally individual. Uh-huh. So okay. th this is the wonderful thing that we find with these intellectual conditions, but also more broadly uh, mental health conditions, which are often comorbid to uh, ADHD, so your anxiety and depressions, is we have not been able to show that one type of exercise is more beneficial than a different type other than the exercise is meaningful to that person. Okay, so you're not pushing one compared to the other, you're just seeing no. what is best for that particular person. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if I can find a type of exercise or physical activity that engages these people, I'm stoked. Mm. Whether that suits with my bias of I like strength training and deadlifting or not, that doesn't matter. You know, it's my job to just get them to engage in exercise. Yeah, it's what they need, and not what you want regularly. them to do. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay, and what's the frequency then? Let's mm. come down to that. Look, all, all studies um, kind of look at minimum twice a week. Yeah, two to three times a week is generally where the research goes. But you know, ideally to create a routine, the more the better. You know, when we look at the, the recommendations for your average population, everybody, it's 150 minutes a week of moderate activity is the recommendation. That's the guideline. So if we simplify that down, that's that's 30 minutes, five days a week. All right. So that you would like to see those kids or those young adults do that in some sure. form or another. Yeah. Sure. But All like right. I know that as kids, you can't fit in that amount of exercise every day. So this is where having, say, two to three structured activities a week is uh, can can do the job just as well. So whether that's 
you know, a team sport where you have an hour training and then an hour game on the weekend, great. That's really good. There's 120 minutes. Mm. Um, and say you go for a swim or you, you know, playing in the playground at lunchtime. Yeah. Great. Cool. Done. Climb on some monkey bars, hey? That's it. Yeah. It's yeah. actually not that hard as a kid to get to that uh, number. It's a lot harder as an adult to get to that number because there isn't, you know, an hour and a half a day set in your in your uh, work schedule to go to the playground and um, run around and burn energy. Except 30 minutes five times a week is doable. Very, yeah. For not everyone, unfortunately, well, uh, which is which is where my job comes into. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's about trying to find these times. I also think with, you know, if we bring it back to more recent times as well with, with COVID, I know with us in the practice, we saw a lot of people coming in, adults, children, kind of everyone in between, that weren't getting that incident incidental exercise either. You know, mm. we went from walking to the bus stop or walking to work to, you know, walking from the kitchen to the the home study, which mm. often was the dining table, to to work and sit there all day. So I think also, and we mentioned, you know, in a, in a previous episode too, we're gaming a lot more, people on a lot more technology-based activities. You got a problem with that? <laughs> not, no, not I in moderation. S- it sounds personal. I could see Leah's face change a little bit <laughs> not, too. Not in moderation, but we're doing, we're spending a lot more time sedentary, simple as that. And I think our kids are, well, I know our kids are as well. Mm. Um, mm. So I think... 30 minutes five times a week doesn't sound much to most people, but mm. to some it it changes their routine dramatically. Um, and I think, you know, Archie, you might have a better insight into this, but kids that might have, you know, ADHD or when you said before with ASD as well, um, some of them might have a preference on, you know, some activities that are more sedentary than those that are more active. Totally. And that's, I guess, a barrier as well to, to treatment. Totally, totally. Yeah, it's, it's very, very difficult because often – you know, the people who get to me are the ones who aren't engaging. Yeah. You know, um, you know, it's for the, the ones that already enjoy sport and are already engaging in team activities or, you know, uh, martial arts, that sort of thing. They, they don't need to see me. You know, I, if they do, I just kind of encourage them to keep going with what they're doing and give them some ideas to fill in the gaps if needed. But it's often the ones who don't have any interest in physical activity. Those are the ones who find their way to me. And then the, the task is more difficult because we need to explore more options and see if we can find something that catches their attention and drives them to want to do a physical activity more often. Yeah, it's definitely a specialist sort of um, approach, isn't it? I mean, as you say, some kids you could just throw out in the playground and say, off you go, but other That's people, it. yeah. It's quite know. funny. Uh, I've been talking to some parents who are coming out of lockdown and been talking about, and their kids have been homeschooled, and they're talking about the different things that uh, they've been doing in sport and PE from from home and uh, it is some of it's disappointing some of it's amazing some of them have been doing like online yoga classes uh, with teenagers and they've been engaging in it because it's like a structured thing that they're following and hey you have to be on on your classroom your video classroom when you're doing it but then you've got other ones who just go uh just just go outside run around for 30 minutes and guess what kids in their bedrooms do they minimize that window and then start gaming because yeah. like well that's not structured what are they going to do you know but i think structure is one thing but also plenty of variety as well i think yeah. so you know how many i'm going to you know talk about adolescents here for a second but how many particularly adolescent boys participate in yoga 
totally i don't reckon many so i reckon you know there's novelty to that as well there was something different they may not engage in 30 minutes of yoga yeah. every day for the rest of their lives their minds. but exactly right and and you know it comes back to even as simple as just um activating some of their mechanoreceptors in those joints right and and getting that feedback to the brain to nourish that that beautiful brain of theirs mm. uh, and develop a, a great brain you know and that we can relate that straight back to some of that research you were talking about before actually with those mm. changes in the actual brain structures that's it. We love and great brains. So going back, say, 60 years, because that's how old I am. I was God, give us a story. Is it story time? No, no, I'm asking a question. So, you know, there was no such thing as ADD or ADHD or ASD or whatever. You know, do you feel... Wasn't diagnosed yet. Yeah. So do you feel is actually an increasing population of people who are being diagnosed as this, you know, where, I mean, I think... Looking at um, Leah here and her, I mean, Robin, Leah's mother, would still probably have ADD, ADHD. <laughs> she never stops. <laughs> but this is what I'm trying to say. Do you feel that we have a name for something that um, previously would have just oh, been... Oh, like doesn't need a name, this, this kind of well, thing? Well, I'm just wondering whether there's an increase in numbers for whatever reason. I mean, do we have um, any answers or is it just a rhetorical question? I mean, I haven't seen the stats. Mm. Um, if the numbers are increasing... I don't think it's a bad thing. I think a lot of people have this impression that like, oh, now we're just giving a name to naughty kids, mm-hmm. giving okay. naughty kids a reason uh, to do something bad. It's like, well, if if we're trusting the professionals who are diagnosing these these kids, these adolescents, I think it's really important that these kids do have an idea of what's going on so they can get the correct treatment and management because just labelling someone as a naughty kid can be harmful for the rest of their lives. Mm. They can start to suppress different characteristics that they don't have control over suppressing. And this can lead to much, much worse problems than, you know, having a diagnosis of ADHD. Yeah, so your point, Chris, when you stated those figures about um, 80% of um, adults. It was a mental health condition. Yeah, so best to start early. I think also our research Mm. and our knowledge in in this area um, in intellectual disabilities um, as a broader topic has come a long way as well. Mm. I think, you know, if we go way, 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 way back when, when a lot of our mental health disabilities and intellectual disabilities were sort of just seen as a bit made up in your own mind. Mm. Obviously, there's a lot of harm that comes with that language as well. But Mm. I think our research and our ability to actually see and understand some of these physical changes to our brain structures or to our neurology Mm. um, goes a long way in helping us understand that there is something, in fact, going on here physically. And I think, yes, I think the diagnosis is probably where, you know, more kids are being diagnosed with this. And I think that goes hand in hand or, or runs parallel with uh, our research and our developments in in the medical field as well. Yeah, and the more we can talk about this stuff and make it common knowledge, the more it seeps down into every level of society. Yeah. So Sarah, one of our good friends, is a kindergarten teacher. And I was having a chat to her on the weekend about kids coming back into the classroom and how she has desks at the back of the room for kids who need a fidget and move around and move their arms and legs a bit. And so they do it at the back so they don't, you know, interrupt the uh, the rest of the class, but she's not going, stop moving, you know, sit straight, stop moving, you know, posture up. She's giving them the space to move and fidget and this sort of thing because that's just them. And, I mean, here's where our professions could cross over down the line one day because in one of our episodes, Sarah did talk about something called primitive reflexes and... (gasps) 
Yeah, and how if they are not integrated, a lot of kids cannot sit still, you know. So yeah. it would be great if they actually um, did see their Cairo, you know, have some things worked on. I mean, some may simply have alignment issues or an old injury that was never fixed. Mm. But yeah, I'm glad that the well, our population is much more kind about um, accommodating um, kids and using different labels. You know, like Definitely. you need to fidget, not not your naughty. You know, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. exactly. And I think you know, on a really good point there, if we can combine EP and Cairo um, as two disciplines that can work really great together. In this example, is when you're getting a diagnosis from a younger age, say between you know six and ten, let's say, because um, that's sort of you know beginning of school age for kids their neuroplasticity as well is going to play a huge part. Mm. So if we can then, you know, help them through both exercise therapy and talking through our bias at the moment as chiropractors, um, we can make or we you can have so much more impact and make so much more change in a kid's life, let alone their neural structures uh, from those early years. So I totally agree when we can get a diagnosis happening earlier in life, you're hopefully going to set them up with some strategies and a better body and a better brain and a better neural um, nervous system or neurology, as well as the exercise therapy strategies to go hand in hand with that to hopefully help them, you know, have a better life. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, you know, how many patients we've asked to go and see an EP, you know, because as Sarah knows I'm essentially lazy, you know, I don't want to do all the work myself. <laughs> no, I but, never I, say <laughs> such a thing, Lily, I would no, never. As Sarah knows, <laughs> I know that you don't say it. But um, so what I'm trying to say is that we do know that um, certain therapies enhance other ones and I'm so behind people um, exercising. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And I think, you know, that Archie, you said before, um, exercise doesn't play, isn't the, isn't the number one answer or the only answer. Um, and I think that comes down to, and we've said it before, you know, we work closely with so many other practitioners with, with our patients. Yeah. Uh, and I honestly do think that's where you get the best results because you're getting that really well-rounded, very holistic approach They're to healthcare. They're all just pieces of the pie. Totally. And it's a nice whole well-rounded pie in that. Yeah. Isn't that right? I have some, um, some comments that just from me talking to some of my clients um, with ADHD and, you know, asking them, it's like, you know, why, why do you exercise? What do you notice? And this is some of the stuff that you can't really uh, quantify or explain in the research. Yeah. Um, and it's you can only get it from people who've been living, you know, with ADHD for a long time and they have the insight to understand what they notice. And some interesting comments, some things like, you know, after I exercise and I'm tired, my brain finally calms down. Yeah. And it gives me a you know, a period of calm that I don't really get for much of the rest of the day because it's just fatigued and it's wonderful. Or, you know, when I exercise, it takes my mind off other things because for these people, there's so much going on and that's one of the the main things is that they never stop. There's always things going on and sleep is really hard because they're always thinking about things. There's always focusing on something else and it's very, very hard to, to stop. So when you exercise and you can focus on that, it, it's really, really nice to just kind of block out everything else and just do that, which I find really, really interesting. Um, also, had someone describe to me really effectively how stimulants actually help them, you know, not from a neurological standpoint and seeing how it affects the brain, but more so um, it was explained to me as the stimulant speeds up the the parts of my brain that are behind the other areas and brings everything to level. And then when everything's level, I can control it better. Yeah, interesting. Which yep. I thought that was really, really interesting. Yep, so it kind of brings sense. everything into alignment and then they can 
and I guess really, I guess chiropractically we see that Buzzword. as well, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But that's a very emotionally intelligent, um, well, they're emotionally intelligent answers that you've just very, given us. Very you much know? so. Because they're, they are just great insights into self, mm. um, which I suppose some of these young people have had to deal with much earlier because mm. they've had so-called mm. um, a condition. Yeah, and, mm. and, and these people may not know that until, you know, they've lived with both on medications, had multiple different ones and just seen how they affect them, been in different environments, whether that's school environment, employment, you know, university, these sorts of things, to see how um, different or they're affected in different parts of their life. Yeah. Mm. So I guess you want to um, touch on, we've touched on a couple, but kind of elaborate a little bit more on some barriers that you might see to this idea of exercise therapy um, and also some ways that we might facilitate or overcome these potential barriers in your patients? Definitely, definitely. I think uh, the number one barrier I come across is finding something that's engaging to the human in front of me because if they're not engaged with the exercise, then their attention is going to be somewhere else. They're going to want to do something else. The last thing they're going to want to do is follow instructions. Um, So if you cannot identify this activity, and this is the crux of it, you cannot identify the exercise that is meaningful to the human in front of you, cannot engage them in it, then, you know, you're, you're going to be hitting your head against the wall over and over. Um, some ways that we find is very, very useful to help them engage um, is using things like a whiteboard to structure a session. Structure a session. So if I can lay out a session um, for someone in front of me with dot points, and clearly written down everything that they need to get through in say half an hour, whatever, and how many of each thing they need to do, then they can kind of go, okay, cool. This is what I need to focus on. This is how long I need to do it for. And it's much more stomachable for them to go, right, I can concentrate on this for this amount of time. And then I can see that once I tick these things off, then I can, you know, uh, relax. Then I can unfocus from that. Yeah, I've completed this task. I've completed this task. Mm. That's it, exactly. Yeah. So that's, to, to me, that's been the, the biggest uh, breakthrough was finding out that some people just need the added structure of here is what I'm going to do over this next time period and seeing that laid out for them. And I think that's relevant, not just in exercise, but in other areas of their life as well, that if they can see a structure of what they have to do over a certain amount of time that could be beneficial you know kind of gives mm. them a, a view of how long i need to do something for and then i kind of break mm. and it's not just you know i have to focus now but it's i have i'm going to focus for the next 30 minutes mm. and mm. do these tasks and complete them so there's an end i guess to their focus which they probably find difficult you know to have that anyway but they can kind of control it a little bit more yeah yeah absolutely i also, as I said earlier, it's, it's people aren't coming to me as the first step. They're coming to me later on down the process. We've already seen a bunch of practitioners and some other therapists is I'll ask the parents what helps this person um, focus or what helps this person engage more because the parents will either have strategies they've found themselves that have worked you know, over the, the however many years they've been alive for or strategies that their psychologist, their pediatrician, their OT have helped them discover and find work with them. Or and ones then I that will, don't work as well. Yeah, the ones yeah. that don't work, absolutely. And then I'll just implement those things. 
So with some people it's, and I'm thinking more for uh, younger kids who need, need a bit more structure um, to their sessions. Otherwise they, they might come in to see me and I'm in a gym environment and they see about a hundred different pieces of equipment yeah. and there's mirrors and there's bars and there's balls and there's boxing gloves. And all you want to do is just try and, you know, make an obstacle course and then jump on this thing. And we, you know, if we do that, then we might get through kind of one of everything at no intensity and it's a, not a very successful session. Yeah. No one really gets anything out of other than I'm drained and tired and they're... I just put all the equipment away. And, and yeah, and they still haven't kind of... <laughs> and they still haven't, you know, got anything out of it because they haven't kind of been fatigued. They haven't, you know, exerted any energy yet because um, they've just been trying, you know, can't focus on one thing at a time to, to spend enough energy. Um, so, you know, finding out ideas from the parents and the other s- support that they have about what helps this person focus mm. can be really, really beneficial, whether that's counting. So it's like, all right, we're going to start this thing in three, two, one. Okay, now we're going to start it. So they go, oh, I've got three seconds. Oh, no, I can't be late for the count. I better start. Or, you know, whether they use a stern voice with them, whether they use a friendly soft voice with them, what does this person react better to? Yeah. Mm, there's a lot to it, isn't there? There's a lot to it. But I wouldn't mind saying that it would be a fun thing to come to. Totally. Yeah. Totally. They're, they're the best sessions. Mm, um, good. Because you're basically playing. Mm. Right? Yeah. And we love that. So we've covered a lot. I think so. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to ask me? Well, I don't it doesn't know. have to be about this. No, it's okay. What's and what dinner? about. <laughs> no? <laughs> You've moved out. Bye. <laughs> I'm coming to your Sarah, dinner. Yes. dinner? <laughs> I knew that was coming. I was waiting for it. So anything you'd like to ask us or we've covered our little session today? Where do you guys come into the picture when ADHD? As in like say when yeah, you are. Good question. Because I, I, I know both of you see quite a lot of kids. Um, all right. We'll what, be, what are you focusing on with these? With this all right. Well, because we've done a lot of talking tonight already, um, I'll be very, very brief. Okay? Brief is good. Yeah, brief is good. So we are about feedback. So we are from the down up. So if your body is not comfortable, then let's generally say your brain's not going to be real comfortable. So that's very simplistically, but there are a whole bunch of neural pathways that will determine that. So we would like a, a child to, to structurally um, be working well. I think that's really important. And from a brain science point of view, there's certain um, parts of the brain that we would like to fire a bit better. And in the way I work, there's the right and left asymmetry um, theory or model. So I'm very interested in, as you say, all those brain structures, you know, the basal ganglia, the thalamus, the cerebellum, prefrontal cortex, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we do have a right and left of each. So in our therapy, we try and determine um, how how deep and um, wide is this asymmetry and if there's anything at all that we can do to help people um, balance the asymmetries a bit better and then they can go on go off and enjoy the other therapies a bit better too. And I, like I think, you know, we see all the same sorts of things, you know, inability to focus and trouble paying attention and um, having to, you know, fidget and move and not sort of fit that structured model of, you know, let's say school, the school environment. So I think, yeah, our role is very much that, you know, down up, uh, feeding back to that to the brain and then helping, you know, build their referral network as well with, say, EPs or, you know, OTs or speech pathologists or optometrical behavioural therapists and, you know, 
that's it's a mouthful. And a previous episode too. For that one. A previous episode too. Sarah and I did discuss things like um, primitive reflexes, as I mentioned, but also um, gait, you know, yep. and structure. So they sound very basic and and everyday, but you'd be surprised how many kids will come to you with a massive head tilt, yeah, you know, or a foot turned in, or or a or hip dysplasia, you know. I mean, and that's going to limit their 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 fun and limit their ability to to do exercise at a comfortable level. You know, they're the kind of things that I reckon kids structurally um, should at least have addressed. Healthy yeah. body, health, healthy brain, right? That's Something it. like that. Yeah, we love it. <laughs> so, like Arch, I guess to finish us <gasps> off, I would love you to God. share with us um, your three little things. <gasps> Drum roll. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> God, God. Um, three little things. Oh. So number one is make it meaningful. Yeah. Yeah, that's the most important thing when it comes to exercise in this population. And I'll extrapolate to most populations um, is make it meaningful. Number two is diagnosis is a good thing. It allows us to help this population effectively. And also the third one is understanding the the comorbidities that can come along with it. Mental health is really, really important here. You know, and understanding that, you know, this population does need support and it's not just getting them through school. It's support long-term as well because a lot of these other mental health conditions can come on later in life. Mm. So continuing to support these people is really, really important. Mm. Lovely. Yeah, I love that. And just to finally finish us off, share with our audience or our listeners where they might be able to find you or get in contact with you. So uh, I work at a place called Rebound Health. We're on the northern beaches of Sydney. I also have a podcast of my own. <laughs> it's nowhere near as fancy as this. Um, we're called the Honest EP Podcast and we basically – sit down we have a beer and we talk about issues in health kind of like the anti three little things podcast (laughs) (laughs) um and you can find me on instagram as well at archie.richards.ep awesome and we will share those details with your permission in our show notes as well permission granted awesome thank you so much so that is episode seven thank you for listening and we'll see you on episode eight A quick disclaimer, these episodes are not intended to replace help, treatment or advice from your healthcare professionals. The information in today's podcast is purely for educational purposes and is not designed to diagnose or treat any conditions. This is just a friendly reminder that we do not know you or your child or those around you and therefore do not know your specific needs. Please seek guidance from your healthcare professionals surrounding your concerns.